Mikey, Mikey, Mike. Yeah. How are you, my friend? Great. Yeah. All good in California, eh? Yeah, it is a beautiful day today. There's like a... Oh, yeah, don't some... tell me about it. Shut up. About <laughs> it. Let's not talk about Berlin January. <laughs> we have a special episode today, man. Muhammad Ali would have turned 80 years next oh Monday. You're listening to The Americanist Podcast, powered by Podbean Podcast Hosting. Uh, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen. My name is Johannes Ehrmann in Berlin, and I'm joined, as every time, by my friend and accomplished scholar, Mike Bayoki, <laughs> in the blue or red corner. Which, which corner do you want? <laughs> yeah, I want red. I want red. You want red? That's yeah. my favorite color. Okay, we're both in the red corner today. Okay, yeah. <laughs> in the blue corner... A person born as Cassius Marcellus Clay on January 17th, 1942, uh, when our countries were at war with each other. Yeah. That's how, that's how long ago that was. Awkward. Um, yeah. I'm curious. So let's to get this started, I want one word that you associate with Muhammad Ali. Oh, man. One word. I, okay, this is... And we didn't prep you, this, so I'm you did not prep you on this. the spot. So the first word that occurs to me seems wrong, but it's the first word that occurs to me is like, like sparkling or something like that, like sort of mm. like, interesting, uh, like in, the, in like a magical like uh-huh. you know like celebrity kind of way. It was the first word that occurred to me. I, I'm not sure why, but like it's yeah. okay. He has that razzle dazzle, I guess. So I, when I think about him, I think about the word love, mm. really. and we can talk about it a bit later. But sparkling is pretty good. Um, so I'm curious for you growing up in the States, what were the images? And he's like this very iconic figure, obviously. What were the images yeah. of Muhammad Ali, you know, the, the greatest boxer and sports person yeah. of all time? What were the images of him when you were growing up? So I grew up in Maine, which is, you know, a northern state um, and very, you know, in a pretty rural town and almost exclusively white Anglo, you know, kind of like descent, even though it's like a name like Bayoki, like it was, I was, you know, yes, I was, I was sort of the exotic one being of Italian heritage. So, so Muhammad so Ali float yeah. like a butterfly sting like a wasp. <laughs> yes. With a lot of pasta sauce on top. <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, I totally just, that took me a second to get the wasp thing. Very well done. <laughs> All right. Sorry. I interrupted no. with, with nonsense. So, so you, I mean, I can't tell you how different he was right like so here's a physically powerful presence right so like i think you know the iconic image of him like sort of standing over you know his opponents Mm -hmm. and you know and that that kind of thing was like the the earliest images i can probably pull up of Mm -hmm. him and Um, that's him standing over sonny liston i think i I think that's the one yeah i think he didn't he did it a a handful of times like it was like a pretty common sort of but you're right the the liston is like the big the big yeah. But man, he was like an entry point to so many different discussions. I think if I think back, like we talked about him in our history class several times because of mm-hmm. like how he interacted with the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. you know, his critique of religion, you know, it, you know, the, the sort of um, Southern black culture at the time and how white, you know, how how he saw whiteness, um, you know, it was I mean, he he was a phenomenally important way for us in a very different part of america to understand a very you know important fraught part of the american mm-hmm. culture so he was he was born into a black middle class family uh in louisville kentucky yeah and 
I mean, did you ever go near some of these states when you were a child, or how far away was like Kentucky from from Maine? And so yeah. like a literal and symbolic. Yeah, sense. symbolically, it could not be further away. I mean, like it's you know, growing up, I spent probably like a lot of folks, sort of roughly of my socio demographics, time on the both coasts. So. I would spend time in the in New England. I would spend time in sort of like Florida, and I would spend time on the West Coast. That's sort of mm-hmm. we, we did a little bit in the Midwest because of my family, sort of mm-hmm. Wisconsin, where we basically we're, that's basically like little Germany uh, here in yeah, the United States, the German Wisconsin. Belt. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, we basically flew over um, that part of the country, flyover uh, country, really right? Yeah, so that's it. that's yeah where it gets its name from. Yeah, and so especially at that time. You know, it was just very, we started to grow as different kinds of cultures. And so it was, it would probably be more like, uh, you know, you guys thinking about the British or something like that. Um, it was yeah. still a very segregated place that he grew up into. Um, oh, yeah. So, you know, a place where he couldn't be served in all the restaurants as a black person. Yeah. I mean, obviously, these kind of places don't exist anymore uh, in the <laughs> States, right? I mean, in a literal sense. Well, I mean, not, not in the sort of codified way, but yeah, I mean, that's when a lot of the foundations were built up for segregation and when they were like redlining, so forcing. I mean, there's know, no there's no yeah. more science like, you know, color that's only right. toilets that's or right. restaurants or whatever. Institu- at that point, it was institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially he, in the South, especially yeah. in the South, um, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, like in Maine, it wasn't an issue just because it was basically just white people. Right. Yeah. So it was. You know, um, but there was, yeah, there were different, yeah, different mm-hmm. aspects. So if you think mm-hmm. about like how Chicago evolved as a multi-cultural mm-hmm. um, city, like mm-hmm. it, it it has separations um, between different groups, but not in the same antagon to the same type of and level of antagonism as you might have had in like St. Louis. And I'm assuming your dad would have still seen his fights in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, so yeah. what what kind of stories would he tell you about him? Or was this ever like a point of discussion? Or? Yeah, well, you know, so this is one thing about my family. We're not a big sports family. So it wasn't, he didn't enter my thinking necessarily as an athlete, just because that wasn't the kinds of stories that we would tell each other. I mostly knew him as an anti-war um, figure. And so... My family, but um, you know, a lot of the stories came through my dad, uh, were political in a different, very distinct and different way than, uh, so let me, I forget if I said this exactly, but Vietnam War, right? Mm-hmm. So both of my father and Muhammad Ali were sort of eligible for the draft, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, during that period. My dad is of a certain type of, you know, anti-war person. So he was in a prestigious university getting his degree um he also had medical exemption because of some hip disorder that my family has and so there's a pretty major schism i I think we should probably talk about this in a little bit more depth you know that happened around this period that you still see playing out today so the when we went to vietnam war the vietnam war it was very fraught and uh the kinds of people who didn't want to go to war in that generation there was a class that looked a lot more like my dad that was well off and could get themselves out of the draft. Mm-hmm. Um, they obviously also had other critiques of the war. Um, the sort of not, you know, the sort of skepticism at 
the domino effect kind of uh, mm. reasons for doing this. Um, but they had access to advantages uh, that allowed them to get out of, um, of the war. That left a major scar in American politics, and you see that sort of playing out now. The listening to Muhammad Ali, because we did some, you know, we were listening to some of the documentaries and sort of before this podcast, his critique and the way he got to the point where he was objecting to the war is very distinct from my father and, and, and that kind of stuff. So it was just absolutely fascinating. And that's, that's the kind of thing that I understood from my father's discussions were sort of what did Muhammad Ali's critiques and rejection of the Vietnam War do to how the, wor- to how the world, but also Americans thought about it and how it offered mm-hmm. a different way to think about what was wrong with the war. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the most... Uh, popular uh, political figures that avoided going to the war was George W. Bush, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So he was one, then he served in some National Guard unit or something. Yes, or, uh, so that's right. He never had to leave American soil, basically. That's right. Yeah, and it was sort of fairly obvious that what had happened was he got to get the benefits of being in a sort of a domestic military deployment through mm-hmm. you know, his political connections. The Bush family is very powerful and has had a lot of money mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. And I mean, so Muhammad Ali, um, Basically, he was at the peak of his power. He was unbeaten, a world, had been world champion when the effort in Vietnam was really stepped up. Um, right. and, and they reclassified him. At some point, he was eligible to go. They would have sent him over. Right. Um, right. And he was say, like, no, I'm not going. You know, I'm not. Yeah. And, and the reasoning was, um, what he said was, I'm not going to fight a war against people I don't know, I've never met, who have nothing to do with me. Uh, and he made this famous uh, quote, you know, no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word, yeah. right? So, I mean, that was his point of reasoning, a, a very fair reasoning. I mean, yeah. he was like, my people here don't have freedom. Why should I fight for, for any kind of virtual freedom somewhere overseas right. uh, when, you know, my people don't even have freedom in a domestic sense? Yeah. Um, and he risked going to prison, right? He could have gone yeah. to prison up to, up to five years. Yeah. Um, he did not in the end, but uh, he lost his prime years in the ring. For three and a half years, he couldn't, couldn't fight. The images I, I um, grew up with, um, one day, I don't know how old I was, maybe 10, 12 or so, my dad came home from the service station and he, he brought a VHS tape. Mm. Um, and there, it had two fights on it. It was like the, the first episode of a series on the greatest boxers of all time. And of course, the number one was Ali. Um, the first fight was the Liston fight we talked about, uh, yeah. black and white, 1964. Uh, and the second one was George Foreman when he, when he came back mm. and regained the title in yeah. Zaire, which is now Congo in Africa. Um, and it was already just visually, these 10 years could, could, have, not, could have not been further apart. You know, the mm. first fight in black and white uh, with very poor sound quality. And then the second one in color and like, you know, surrounded by 100,000 African people in the stadium. And I was like, wow, I mean, this guy even put color on the television, you know, (laughs) how crazy is this, you know, and he was still beating the people, you know. Um, So that was very influential. And then I I spent a lot of my time when I was like 16, 17 years old setting up so th- these were the early stages of the of the internet setting up like a muhammad ali fan page reading up all his That's stuff right yeah and it was it was really it was the first time you could globally interact as well yeah. so i remember like ordering at the time even still like vhs series <laughs> from the us 
you know <laughs> and awesome. you know there, i think amazon was just up and coming as well in, yeah, in the late 90s and and so i i but it was a tiny thing uh, so um yeah so i did a lot of lot of research back then on him he left a profound mark uh, on me of course also this image of the visibly shaking ali uh, lighting the olympic flame yeah. in atlanta in 1996 so like a, a battered man but not a broken man you know like still right. sort of maintaining his dignity his pride and yeah but i'm, I'm curious like what, what are what are the takes you you have on him and and we watched this uh, i am ali documentary high recommendation for yeah, everyone out there uh, which focuses a bit also on his masculinity on him as a as a family man right so would you no, that, that's a complicated part of the story yeah yeah when i was watching it i i, I mean he is just so american um <laughs> is like and and i don't know how to say this like in the best way i've been like sort of like thinking about how to say but it's like here's a man who just was almost through force of will creating and recreating an identity so one i think one of the brilliant things that they were showing in the in the documentary was like when he started getting interviewed people were asking who you know what is cassius clay where'd that name come from and and hmm. there's a wonderful clip that they have where he's like i don't know <laughs> you know and i need to look into that and yeah. and some of it's like you know showing like verbal gymnastics that this man was capable of like sort mm -hmm. of the sort of on the fly sort of um pulling things apart like that was that was part of the reason that they showed that clip but then you realize that he's gonna he's about to go on and change his name mm -hmm. and so there was like this force of his personality that could reject everything that was given to him you know i'm a black man who grew up in uh, st louis and then take that and reject it and change it through his own efforts and you know he re he explicitly was rejecting like the christian church Mm -hmm. um in order to become a muslim and sort of rechanging his identity that way i, I mean mm -hmm. i think the ability to set out on your own throw away a lot of what was given to you and and create something new powerful and interesting and dynamic like you could not pick a more american hmm. uh person in a, so what, in a what do you way. mean is basically he, he embodied so many facets of american life I think that I think that's a big part of the story that I don't think until I was watching the documentary really got that it was yes he was a phenomenal athlete yes he was offering at this moment a lot of different critiques of what was wrong in the United States about like how you know we were exploiting uh, black athletes you know going to uh, the Olympics and dominating there but then coming home and being poorly treated taking poor folks from the country sending them off to Vietnam not acknowledging or treating them as heroes mm -hmm. when they get back like these things were correct but underlying all of that was his ability to create and sustain a new identity Right, so it didn't, but you know, and maybe there's like some borderline narcissism there. Like you could see that sort of like coming through. Like, mm -hmm. and it was, there's like, uh, like the wrong version of this becomes like a Donald Trump. Like you yeah. know, you could see. Some I have, of that I have a great happen. quote on that later. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, and I think that was really. Here's the last thing I'll say that like occurred to me is like, I think that was really important for a black man at that point, um, because what he was doing is saying like, listen, I've inherited a slave identity. Like this is he I forget exactly how he said that, but like he really did it through his name, mm -hmm. where it was like this name doesn't come to me because 
you know, like I was, my dad was an O'Connor and like I ended up with the name yeah. O'Connor and I can trace myself back. It was like, originally a slave is, name. Yeah, I was, it was a name so. that from my plantation or, you know, like, and, yeah. and so mm-hmm. he goes through yeah. that and he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to choose a different name and I'm going to create this for myself. Yeah. And starting a new history, basically. Yeah, starting I mean, a new Starting history. a new yeah. history in 1964 and he did it the day after he became world champion beating Sonny uh, Liston, I didn't right? know that part. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, of course, like he, he had joined the Nation of Islam and it was very right. sort of militant, segregationalist black yeah, sect. Very, so yes, we, we should, I mean, yeah. we, we also, and some of his messaging was also quite vicious at the time. Also geared yeah. towards some of his black opponents like Joe Frazier. You yeah. also see that in the, um, in the, in the film. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there's this amazing buzz also around him, especially also in the later stages of his career, but even in, also in the earlier ones, you need all, you know, the poems and, mm-hmm. um, and what I meant also by the masculinity aspect, I mean, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. I'm pretty sure no boxer, certainly no heavyweight before him ever compared himself to a butterfly. <laughs> right. 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 I mean, and also then he had this thing of, you know, calling himself pretty and then, you know, touching his hair in a sort of yes. like a bit effeminate way. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the message was clear, you know, black is beautiful, but also male is beautiful. Right. Mm. It was it was a new look, I think. Yeah. And especially if you if you compare it to who he took the title from, Sonny Liston, he was the champion before Ali. He was this, you know, mafia controlled strong man, you know, looked like a had a killer's face and Ali was like you know you call him the big ugly bear yeah. you know he, he and so and that's I think Ali also in a, in a nutshell so he made fun of boxing he made fun of the seriousness of life yeah. but at the same time he was also he was using this to battle his own fear mm. and especially also against George Foreman in Zaire you yeah. see him you know walking up and down the ring um, there's a lot of footage from Deer Lake where we went to the, yeah. the, the training camp with the, with the log cabins in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And he's pacing up and down the ring and he's basically, I mean, there's like hundreds of people around him, but he's basically talking to himself and he goes, like, you know, I should be scared of what? You know, scared of George Foreman? Scared of what? You know, and it's like basically he's talking himself into even just entering this fight against this monster who, is, who has knocked out everyone. Um, so I find so that I very pause, interesting. Yeah. Like yeah. The George Foreman to someone of my age in the United States is the <laughs> guy, the guy with the, bar- the, the barbecue. Yeah, the barbecue. It's like, this is, and, and he is a war machine. Like when you see him in his prime, oh, it is like, that is a gargantuanly powerful human being. Holy cow. So I was watching just a few minutes from, from that fight uh, with the girls uh, yeah. uh, the other day. Um, and there they turned to me and I was like, oh, this, this other guy in the red shorts, you know, that he looks mean, you know, with his mustache. And <laughs> they were immediately like, reacting. Yeah. And then, and then you know, one of the kids goes, yeah, yeah but Ali, you know, I, I would have married him, you know. I would have just married him. <laughs> so that was the immediate reaction to, to this. So also in just an aesthetic way, uh, yeah. there's worlds apart. Yeah. Right from the oh. traditional boxing and then... Oh, yeah. I mean, he's like dancing at certain points, yeah. you know, in, in the ring. Like his footwork and like the sort of rhythm that he's building up. It's a very different... It's like wildly different, more entertaining, but also just sort of the energy that he's exuding is yeah. more interesting and captivating and performative yeah. than the other boxers. He was a ballerina with gloves. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very... And 
you know, if you've ever tried boxing yourself, you know, the, the, the rhythm, the feel of rhythm is like essential for boxing. If you don't have yeah. that, then you're never going to be any kind of boxer. Yeah. Uh, and, and he had that 300%, you know, it was like, yeah. and if you, if you watch some of the early fights, um, it's just amazing. And, and yeah. he's, has his has his gloves down, you know, that every trainer is getting a heart attack from. And like, you know, <laughs> protect your goddamn face. You know, it's like, he's like yeah. no, I don't need to. I'm, I'm too fast for, for anyone. Yeah. So. I really feel like there's something about his ability to create his own identity that mm. lets him do that. So, yes, he has the physical prowess and that kind of stuff. But, like, yeah. his belief that I can be a dominant boxer and do something radically different and departing yeah. allowed him ways to find new ways to express himself new ways to be a boxer that were actually really effective mm -hmm. right when i meet you on the battlefield and i and we agree to fight in a certain way mm -hmm. then it's limited but he was breaking through mm -hmm. these different styles and trying his own and you know seeking out new iterations of what it means to yeah. be to be a boxer mm -hmm. like yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was really interesting like george foreman was like when he was asked is muhammad ali the best boxer and Foreman's answer was like, that is way too limiting. That is yeah. not the right way to think yeah, about it. Yeah, he transcended boxing. Uh, yeah. So Foreman's talking in, in this documentary about mm -hmm. the battle with him. And it had been built up. And you really have to like hear the whole story. Over months. Yeah. Over months. Like he's mm -hmm. really getting to his head. And like, so mm -hmm. in the ring, they're going round after round. And Foreman is throwing great punches. And he's connecting. And he's... And, and the way he tells this story is at one moment, like, Muhammad leans in mm -hmm. and is like, is that all you got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he just yeah. switches yeah. it up and he's like, yeah. I am now. And, like, Foreman is like, at that moment, it was over. He mm -hmm. had me. He, yeah. he had been basically <laughs> doing nothing, receiving my punches, taking everyone. <laughs> I had nothing left. And Muhammad flipped into a different gear and mm. just destroyed him. And that, like, you know rope-a-dope like mm. that sort of I'm not going to play by your rules at all you can't even anticipate me I'm going to understand what you are doing and then create something complete that is mind-blowing <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no and I remember very vividly when I was growing up uh, and my dad he got up with his brothers and his dad uh, in Germany to watch these fights and he, yeah. they would get up at 3 4 a.m. Uh, and I think this fight was held at 4 a.m. In, in African time. Um, mm. And he still remembered that. And they, they were all Ali, right? I mean, Ali was a yeah. huge figure in, in Germany. He yeah. fought in Germany as well. Uh, and they couldn't believe... And they were, like, they were basically dying with him in this, in this ring. You know, they were like, yeah. That's how he was telling me. It's like, no, he, he cannot survive this. This is yeah. all this... And then in the end, he, he knocks him out. You know, he comes out. It's, you know, it's amazing. And you have, you know, 100,000 African people around him, you know, shouting yeah. Ali Boumaye and just jumping up and down and like everyone storming the ring. And there's this insane side story also. Uh, I think it's in the, um, the other great documentary, When We Were Kings, um, mm. that won the Oscar um, mm -hmm. uh, about this fight. Um, there was a, a, a storm flooding, like a pouring down rain, half an hour after the fight was over. And mm. everything was, like, if that had come an hour earlier, there would have been no fight. Mm. And, and then, so th there's this, like, almost spiritual sort of, like, perfection to all this. Like, everything yeah. was in place. And then afterwards, you know, there, there was, like, uh, all hell broke loose. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So very, very sort of spiritual uh, experience there. Yeah, so quick cut. Ali, the family man. I want to talk. I want to get Oof. your get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, so 
let to get this out of the way, notorious womanizer, seven children from three marriages, two more children, acknowledged children from non-marital affairs. But also, I don't know how you found it. When I was watching this documentary and his children talk a lot about him, they talk about him with so much love still, although he was so mm. absent in many ways, but he was also very present in other ways for them. Mm. Uh, and they call him, he was like a notorious yes daddy. <laughs> so apparently yeah. he could never say no to his kids. Right. Um, so he would take them for a restaurant dinner with only dessert courses. <laughs> And he would play hide and see with them, you know, like just do any yeah. sort of stuff. So in a way, he was he was a in a way a non-father as well, right? I mean, right. he was kind of just like a, a, a play playmate to them or something, yeah. right? Uh, and but what I found also quite moving, and I, then afterwards I want to get your take on it. Um, how he was taping conversations with his kids when he was not yeah. in the same place, and he couldn't be. Uh, and that's a very good quote by his daughter Layla. We had to share him anyway. We had to share him with the world. Um, so clearly he couldn't have been a normal dad anyway Um, but then he has this this very moving uh, and deep conversations with sometimes his four five six year old kids where he's like you know explaining to his daughter that everything on the earth and the universe has its purpose you know every plant every animal the sun and the moon and then he asks his daughter you know you should ask yourself and she's what four or five years old what's your purpose in life you know and and she gives a great answer you know she says you know I want to I want to help people um, yeah. So, for me, that was really, and even even his former wives, who who he cheated on so many times, and she in the same sentence when she acknowledges this, she's like, she still there's so much love for him yeah. still, and she could see there's so much love from him for everyone around him. I I think it really bothered me some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm gonna have a very complicated view of of some of the stuff that you just said, like. To me, underlying that is a lot of a need for love, representing, you know, like the sort of constantly finding a new person to be with, uh, bouncing around. Uh, even sometimes when he was like having that conversation with his kid, it did kind of one make me wonder if it was performative to the outside world. Mm. You know, I, I don't know if he would have had that conversation if he hadn't been recording it and sort of looking towards future, you know, in, in the audience. Mm. He, I mean, he he strikes me like if he was around now, if you shifted it and all this stuff sort of like still held together. I mean, he would be a senator like from, mm. you know, Louisiana or like he would yeah. he would be. Uh, much more of a public figure and mm. probably sort of parlay because he had that sort of need to be out and adored and, and that yeah. kind of stuff. And, and to perform really, for crowds. That's, what, that's what he was doing. Mm. To, to perform and also to, to, like, to have different forms of love constantly being put towards him. And like when you talk about like going to the dinner and just having dessert or, you know, uh, talking, you know, his daughter was, one of his daughters uh, was talking about like how if discipline needed to happen, he would, Muhammad would hand, hand the kid over to the oh, mom yeah, yeah, who then yeah. discipline and then he would come back and like give them love afterwards. <laughs> so it's just, you know, mm. you know, it was interesting because like, here's a man who's like destroying um, physically other people. Also, mm. he would attack other people yeah. mentally before he got into the ring, but he's also craving love and like being, yeah. you know, so, um, I see that's really problematic, like the way he built mm. his family and like lived uh, that way, and probably mm. hints at some of 
why he was so successful was this sort of drive to constantly being pleased but you know um, yeah. pleasing other people having new people sort of look at him in a powerful way like i don't mm. know i i understand yeah. like that they were feeling love and saying good things about him afterwards but it was like oh yeah. this is really problematic yeah it's for it's cringe as well for sure yeah. from a 2022 perspective yeah. certainly um another documentary um where i really was impressed uh, it's called facing ali and it interviews mm a lot of people that fought against him and that he tortured yeah. in the ring, outside of the ring. And even there, and there is, there is resentment. Joe Frazier is interviewed and there's, there's definitely resentment yeah. there. Um, but in the end, all of them have uh, almost like a heartwarming story to share of how he was there for them. Yeah. During that time or afterwards, and even when the cameras were not on, the one had, I think, Ernie Terrell, he had this awful car accident, and and he woke up in the hospital, and, and Ali was there. Yeah. And and he just looked at him, and he's like, and he could barely talk, and he's like, Ali. And, and, and Ali just leans down to him, and he's like, let's do it again. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, and there's these, like, these amazing encounters and all. And yeah. Joe Frazier is, like, tearing up in the end. It's, it's like, I wish he could have a better life now. Yeah. You know? It's like, it's very, very moving. So, I, I understand, I, and I don't want to be apologetic at all about no. some of the stuff. I, he certainly hurt a lot of people as well. But there's these, these amazing stories. And the one story with the, with the boy who has cancer uh, from, the, from the documentary um, where... You know, you say it's so typical Ali also like this playfulness to even deal with death right. uh, or trying to deal with it. It's like, you know, I'm going to fly to Africa and beat George Foreman, but you have to promise me to beat this leukemia, you know. It's, yeah. and, the, and the boy is like, no, I will go meet God, but I will tell him, you know, Muhammad Ali was my friend. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like, yeah, just just some some amazing stuff. Um, and so for me, and this, this is sort of my, my last take maybe on this on this family topic. And we had this quote of his daughter, you know, we had to share him with the world. And for me, it was almost like a global father figure, you yeah. know, and really transcending, also transcending, you know, all the borders and boundaries. And, and when I set up this Muhammad Ali fan page, you know, what I was so amazed about within months, I had, you know, I had this little guest book set up where people mm -hmm. could, you know, sign in. I had people from all over the globe. Yeah. You know, and page was in English, and they they came from whatever Malaysia, from Australia, yeah. from Russia, from all parts of the U.S. for sure. Yeah. Um, and I found this great quote from a from a recent interview um, with um, Ken and Sarah Burns, uh, documentary makers, um, who have also made a documentary on Ali, which is currently running on German television. And Sarah Burns, this is her quote: "She's like." Sometimes people would meet Ali just by accident on a street corner or in the elevator, but they tell that story for the rest of their lives. It's easy to just see a braggart and narcissist in him who, who self-proclaims to be the greatest and prettiest. But if you look more closely, you discover an open-hearted, generous man. He would literally give the shirt off his back to others or the money he was carrying, sometimes even his watch. It sometimes seems to me as if every person on this planet has a connection with Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, giving oh. away your watch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a force of nature. That sort of ability to connect to people and meet, you know, understand what they need or, you know, like, and what they need isn't the watch, right? Like, I'm sure what he was doing is recognizing that they needed a story and they, you know, needed like 
a moment to feel special and like and that's what he was able to deliver mm. over and over again mm. yeah i mean i don't you know i don't want to i am offering that complicated you know critique of him but like you have to take the good of the bad <laughs> and he sure. made so many things possible for other people you know mm. making it possible for athletes to offer societal level critiques it would not be nearly as possible without him his denial of vietnam and his critique of vietnam was done from a place of like deep strength and masculinity you know he, part of also what he said was like if they attacked here i'd be on the front lines i would be one of the first people to fight mm. you know someone who showed up here but like i am rejecting so i'm not weak and that was that's been sort of like a narrative of the, of the uh, anti-war movement mm. so he offered like he opened up different spaces that other people couldn't and, or didn't and yeah. there's just a lot more space that we can occupy there's more things that we can say because of muhammad ali which is insane i mean this is a man who's mostly understood as a boxer but he was really a mm. force of nature across so many different parts of our culture and again i cannot tell you like i think we talked about muhammad ali like four or five times in my history class at different points mm. along the way um, because he offered a different entry point like probably one of the first times that i heard really sustained like he uses um sort of uh southern black uh christian church like cadences in some of mm -hmm. especially in his early speech yeah. i didn't understand that like in, in hearing him talk it's northern um, you know uh american you know american like sort of new england area we tend to speak fast and sort of very clipped and he's using a very lyrical uh, version of English so it's just there were so many different points of departure for him that like mm. uh, and different things that he represented that were sort of different but American but is I can't yeah. tell you how important he was to uh, yeah. to us when we talk about him as, as this very American person uh, this complete rejection of money and the hunt for money like yeah. just this giving away of, of money you know just being this sort of anti-Bezos and like anti-Musk, you know, mm. you know, a guy who didn't need like a billion dollar penis-shaped freaking <laughs> rocket, rocket yeah. to feel like a man, you know, or right. be or, or act like a man. You know, we had this quote about how, you know, every encounter with, with a guy has changed people's lives. Um, and it did mine, right? So I, mm. I had the chance to, to meet him i mean that's a big word i mean i have a photo with me and him yeah. yeah so this was back in 2002 i was a 19 year old kid um who somehow had gotten hold of a press pass to go uh, see him in a, in a tiny town in the east of germany um, yeah. where he was promoting the will smith movie it was the german premiere right. of the will smith ali movie and just this scene you have to imagine so there's like a few hundred people lined up um and he pulled up in this black limousine and he's like you know we're all waiting for him to get out. And it's like, it took probably five, six minutes before I realized, okay, wow, he's just actually struggling to get out of the car. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not to keep us waiting. He's just like struggling with his illness. And then when he finally emerges, he has something in his hand and he starts handing it out to people. And I, I, I'm sort of in the fourth, fifth row. I'm on my tiptoes. You know, like, what, is he, what is he giving there to people? And it turns out he, he hands out $1 bills to the crowd. <laughs> He just has a bundle of one dollar bills. He just, just, you know. So then he finally arrived. He went into this indoor arena where they would show the movie uh, later, and there were probably a few thousand people in there. Uh, so he's, you he saw this broken man basically, right? Like shaking, like very, very slow. Took him half an hour to get on stage. 
And there was this this guy from the local media and then a former opponent of his, a German opponent, and, and the, the guy was like, you know, joking around, you know, why why don't you guys have a rematch? And I'm like, okay, right. I mean, the guy is clearly, I mean, he can barely stand up. But the crazy thing is, like, when he said that, like, he did this, you know how, how he, like, opened his eyes always when he said something? Yeah. So he turns to the crowd and opens his eyes and then was, like, holding their breath. And then all of a sudden his hands go up. He literally starts dancing on the stage. He, no. he throws jabs. It's, oh. I swear, it's not oh. an invention. I swear this happened. And yeah. there was, like, a rush going through this crowd. I've never felt such an energy. It was... Like everyone was like rising from their <laughs> from their seats, and they, it was maybe ten seconds, fifteen seconds. Yeah. Yeah. But no one will forget that. Ever, like no person who was there that day will ever forget this. Yeah. I have no. Where did he take this from? I I don't know. It's like, <laughs> is this how how can this be possible? I love it, and you have to ask yourself: Was he roping the crowd? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mean like was he was he pretending before? Did he did or, he pull a foreman on you guys? Did he? I've never. This is like this is twenty years ago. I've never even. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, like he really had, like that was a. But that moment, I bet he held it in reserve. I bet he knew that that question would come and he could uh, electrify it to hold. He certainly. I mean, he certainly pulled together anything he had in terms of yeah. will and energy that was in him always a yeah. beautiful artist understanding the contrasts and like the ways to anticipate i mean like yeah. an artist in the sense that he understands what people see mm. and he knows how to play with that and yeah. he knows how to make the meaning that's really important happen at the right time i mean the guy i mean like and it's really crazy to think that that was pivotal to boxing right yeah. but like we usually think of that as like uh art or something like that and that's why i think people were referring to him as an artist is mm. he knows the tempo or he knows the what people will anticipate and he knows that mm. a surprise or a how to break that pattern he can see the patterns and then break them and just man just a unbelievable person he's great fun to watch uh, great yeah. fun to follow his his rhyme his verse his, his rap and there's a great eulogy um held by billy crystal he has this great quote that basically sums it up so perfectly like what what ali was about um he said he ran with the gods and walked with the crippled and smiled mm. at the foolishness of it all mm. so yeah it's a pretty good line so, yes excellent so we can end on that i guess please rate and subscribe to us on apple spotify you can also rate us there now and uh, yeah tune back in next month mike thanks so much for your insights always great to talk to you and talk to you soon Take care, my friend. Take care.